Hello, and welcome to the Star Trek Academy, a podcast about the latest new episodes of Star Trek. Today, we're looking at episode two of Star Trek Strange New Worlds, Children of the Comet. Your hosts are two of the Academy faculty members. I'm Rodney Cup, the philosophy professor. And I'm Michael Merrick, the media professor. Follow us on Twitter for announcements about new episodes and other content at Trek underscore Academy. To subscribe your podcast app to this podcast, go to anchor.fm slash Star Trek Academy. So first on the agenda for our podcast today is a brief review of Strange New Worlds Episode 2, entitled Children of the Comet. And with our summary, here is Professor Rodney Cup. Okay, well, the Enterprise is studying a comet in the Persephone system which they learn is on a collision course with the third planet. Now, Persephone 3 is inhabited by technologically primitive humanoid life. And if the comet strikes the planet, there will be no survivors. So when they try to use photon torpedoes equipped with ion engines to alter the comet's course, a force field appears around the comet long enough to deflect them. So Pike sends a landing party to investigate an artificial structure that they discover inside the comet. And it's time for Cadet Uhura to go on her first away mission. Now Uhura confesses that she joined Starfleet because she didn't know what else to do. And on the comet, she feels out of her depth. And Sam Kirk is there also, but he sustains massive trauma from an electrical shock inside the structure and this force field reappears. Anyway, they discover that the comet responds to music and they are able to lower the force field long enough to be beamed back to Enterprise. Now, while all this is happening, Enterprise is being attacked by a ship belonging to the Shepherds, which is far more advanced than Enterprise. They believe that the comet, which they call Mahanet, is one of the ancient arbiters of life and their mission is to protect it from interference. Now, Ortegas flies the ship into the comet's gravity well and they pretend to be completely disabled and ask the shepherds for help. In this position, of course, they can't be fired upon for fear that the comet will be hit. So while the shepherd vessel uses a tractor beam to draw Enterprise away from the comet, Spock uses a shuttlecraft to heat part of the comet and the resulting sublimation alters the comet's trajectory and prevents the collision. Now the shepherds attribute the course correction to the mercy of Mahanet and they part peacefully. Interestingly though, later Uhura discovers evidence that the comet did not intend to strike Persephone three and even foretold Spock's mission to alter its course. And that's the episode. Okay, thank you very much. And before we talk about the philosophy and themes and the morals to the story, as usual, here are some things about the episode we want to touch on. And Rodney, as we had hoped, Strange New Worlds appears to be giving us a strong ensemble cast 
And uh, this episode certainly has the focus on Uhura. Uh, she is the one who solves the problem of communicating with the comet by understanding that it communicates via music. And she's like Hoshi Sato in Enterprise. I'm sure there's an inspiration there. Hoshi was also an expert about learning new languages. That's right. And I'm, I'm loving this. I'm really looking forward to learning more about all of these different characters um, we've learned about two so far, and I'm I, I'm finding them all to be interesting. I want to learn more. I was sorry to hear about those deaths in Uhura's family that caused her to go to Starfleet. I sort of wish they had gone a different direction with that. But yes, this was this was the episode where we learn about her backstory. We've known for years that Uhura's name comes from the Swahili word Uhuru. That means freedom, liberty, independence, latitude. And Swahili is spoken in Kenya, which is where in this episode we're told Uhura is from. She is a speaker of 37 languages, including many of the local native languages in Kenya. 37 languages, but in Star Trek, the undiscovered country, she never learned to speak Klingon. Remember, that was a comedic yeah. scene as they were trying to rescue Kirk and McCoy from Rurapinti. Uh, and the Klingons are enemies in this era, but I would think that knowing their language might be valuable on some occasions. I guess she'll get to it eventually. In this episode, she does speak Andorian and Vulcan, though. Yeah, she won't get to Klingon by the time she's close to retirement. <laughs> Maybe that's a post-retirement project from her. We know from the original series that Uhura has a lovely singing voice. And in this episode, we also hear Spock sing. Remember that in the Short Treks episode Q&A, he also sings briefly. Plus, of course, he plays the Vulcan harp. And he, remember how he jammed with the space hippies in The Way to Eden? Yeah, it was groovy. Spock knows that every musical note has a number associated with it, a number of cycles per second to produce that, that particular note. Uh, the standard A, for example, that's used to tune musical instruments is 440 cycles per second. Like if you were looking on an oscilloscope, that's what it would tell you. A 440A, it's called. And fun fact, 440 cycles per second for the standard A was standardized by the Treaty of Versailles at the end of World War I. And they did it so that military bands of different countries could perform together. Because before that, every country tuned differently. So every note does have a unique number of cycles per second, a number. And so in that way, music is, can be seen as mathematical. Spock certainly understands math and maybe how different numbers can interplay and that. So I think it would make him understand at least the non-emotional aspects of music. One thing I liked about this episode, though, is that Spock does not have all of the answers. I feel like, especially in the third season of the original series, it seemed like Spock was answering questions that should have been answered by other people, other members of the crew. Uh, but here he admits that, you know, he's not the linguistics expert, Cadet Uhura is. And so I, I like that more, I feel like realistic treatment of Spock. You're right. In the original series, he would probably have had the linguistic knowledge to figure it out. And in fact, in the Paradise Syndrome, he did figure out that certain symbols reflected musical notes. Up until it became a crisis, I can see Spock standing aside to let the cadet have a learning experience. But of course, once it became a crisis, 
then everyone's expertise should have been should have been used. It's interesting yeah. that Ahura ran away to Starfleet, which is also what Christine Chapel has done if we maintain the original series continuity that she went into space to look for her missing husband, Roger Corby. That's notwithstanding more or less falling in love with, with Spock. But remember that they did identify that Christine is on board as part of a civilian exchange. So she's apparently not regular Starfleet. And maybe we are going to get some hints of that uh, uh, missing love that she is looking for. Speaking of music, and maybe I should have brought this up at the time a minute ago before talking about Christine, but we have seen two previous examples in Trek that I can think of, of species that communicate with music, or at least with sound patterns that are not spoken voice. One of them was just the most recent season of Discovery, and the other was the original series episode I mentioned a minute ago, the Paradise Syndrome, which by coincidence had a comet about to strike mm. a planet. A comet about to strike a planet and alien species that communicate with music in both of these episodes. So maybe it's not a coincidence that the one maybe inspired the other. Maybe some comets do know their own fate. Maybe the Paradise Syndrome comet is also a Mahanit. So maybe Spock is responsible for changing the fate of two different Mahanit comets by the time of the original series. He just didn't happen to mention to Kirk the second time around that, oh, been there, done this. <laughs> I do have some questions about this episode. Uh, maybe I shouldn't call them problems, at least minor problems or or points um, that, that I noticed. I don't believe they should be referring to the away team yet, away teams. That's an invention of the next generation. And in this era, before, right. before Kirk's Enterprise, Starfleet used the term landing party, as you did in your summary, Rodney. I have a minor problem with this episode, in particular, the way the comet is shown from the planet's surface. I don't know if everybody noticed this, but it's shown moving fairly lazily across the sky. It seems to me it should appear stationary. It's a minor thing, which I think the movie Don't Look Up got right, but it bugs me here. Yeah, I mean, if it was very, very big and very, very close, it might be seen to move. But if it were visibly moving, it would have to be super big, not uh, and it wasn't just in the episode. It wasn't just a dot in the sky, but it was a very, very, very small. It was pretty bright. Diameter. And if it was big enough. Bright enough to be seen. Yeah. And if sorry. it was big enough skimming the atmosphere, as we saw it at one point, it would have appeared bigger, maybe bigger than the moon, even though it's physically smaller, but it's so much closer. So, so it should have appeared bigger. So, yeah, one way or the other, it didn't quite work. Plus the stream behind it, you wouldn't see waving in the wind it would move much more slowly still. I also wonder how did the landing party walk on the comet? Depending on the size of the comet, gravity could easily be a 300th or a 500th of earth gravity. Even flexing your toes on a comet, if you were somehow touched down in a comet on a spacesuit, just like flexing your toes would lift you off. Now in some Star Trek, we've heard about magnetic boots which is fine, but there wouldn't really be any iron on the comet's surface that the magnetism could work on. Comets are basically ice and snow mixed with chunks of rock, and they've often been called dirty snowballs. 
There probably are other sticky materials you could have on the soles of your boots, but even those might have trouble sticking to ice and gravel and things like that. I don't know. I suppose we can imagine the comet itself using some kind of mystery tech to cause more gravity, but that would have been a surprise to the landing party, and they, they would have at least somehow mentioned it with, with some kind yeah. of line. Remember a few years ago, the Rosetta Missions lander on Comet 67P bounced twice before coming to rest <laughs> because it wasn't able to grab on the first time. The first bounce lasted two hours because the gravity yeah. was so low and that little uh, Fila spacecraft was way less mass than a human in a spacesuit. No, I, I remember hearing about that. Now, this comet, on the other hand, I mean, I, I was saying the same thing, Michael, but uh, this comet is huge, right? I mean, it's so big that based on the animation that the crew showed on the Enterprise, it, it just would have completely destroyed the planet had it collided with it. Yeah, it would have been like the one that killed the dinosaurs. The one that killed the dinosaurs was probably an asteroid, a lot more rock than ice, not a comet. But uh, yeah, we saw the graphic projection and it would have been devastating. That doesn't mean all life would have ended down to the microbial level, but it would have been a massive extinction event, certainly. Speaking of the dirty snowball, the first time I watched, I di it didn't click with me just what Spock was doing in the shuttle. It seemed to me the first time I viewed it that he was actually like somehow passing through the middle of the comet, but that's not what he did. What he did was he was circling part of the asteroid with hot shields. And they said that the sublimation of the comet ice and sublimation means the ice changing to gas without really being water in between. Mm -hmm. The heat just causes the individual molecules to pop off. And they said that it was the sublimation that changed the course of the comet. And that is a real thing. Comets heated by sunlight do emit gas in a certain direction and change, change course a little bit even without Spock and a shuttle beam there. But he also broke off that large chunk of ice that mm -hmm. entered the atmosphere and made it rain. And apparently any rocks that were in that chunk of ice were small enough to burn up, not do damage when they hit. But I think breaking off that chunk of ice probably made more of a difference in changing the course of the comet than the sublimation. Because remember this thing called Newton's equal and opposite reaction law? That means that when the chunk of ice went one way towards the planet, the rest of the comet would have gone the other way. Right. Leading up to the scene where Spock is in the shuttle, they kind of kept it a mystery what was going to happen. They don't tell us That's what right. Spock is going to do, but there is one very clear shot as, a, as Uhura walks past of Spock's console on the bridge empty. Yeah, that reminded me of a certain scene in Star Trek too, Michael. Yeah, in the motion picture, there's a scene where Kirk suddenly realizes that Spock's workstation is empty because Spock has mm -hmm. gone outside in the spaceship. And oh, apparently right, right. apparently, in both scenes, there is no, no deputy assistant science officer to take over when Spock leaves on these occasions. I don't know. I mean, when someone leaves the helm position, someone else drops right into place. But maybe That's they right. didn't really need a science officer for this mission. Eh, don't know. That didn't quite seem right. Speaking of bridge consoles, there's one quick line in which Uhura calls the attention of the duty comm officer to a call from the alien ship. The duty officer can quite noticed, and that demonstrated in a really quick line that Uhura is smart and knows what she's doing. Yeah. 
We've talked about one inspiration from the original series, but I think there was another here, the Corbamite Maneuver. In that episode, Kirk claimed he had a weapon that would reflect weapons fire back at the sender. And in this episode, he didn't do exactly the same thing, but Pike claimed that if they blew up the Enterprise, the trilithium resin in the engine would blow up the comet. And trilithium has been defined in the past as a residue of warp engines, but it's also been defined as an explosive or potential explosive powerful enough to extinguish a star, extinguish the nuclear reaction in a star, which is why not everybody gets to have some. It's not exactly the same thing as corbomite, but it really is a very similar ploy, it seemed to me. Yes, it is. And finally, in this part of the podcast, I noticed I noticed something last week, actually, I didn't mention it in our podcast last week, but in the original series shuttle, there are devices uh, attached to both sides of the cockpit, the front where the, the pilot and navigator are sitting, that, that extend on booms from the wall, but they're spherical, but it's like they have one side cut off and inside mm-hmm. presumably houses some kind of display. Spock's shuttle this yeah. week had them. Of course, much fancier looking with our modern design technology, but it still is a design element directly inspired by the original series to be familiar. As it should be. So, okay, then let's go ahead and talk about meaning now. Shift our focus uh, to the messages the writers or the producers might have wanted to convey to us in this episode. What are you thinking about here, Michael? I see two basic messages in this episode. Neither of them is really uh, heavy handed. It doesn't hit you over the head like last week. Uh, You may even have to look for them a little bit. But I think it was what we're expecting of Strange New Worlds, not necessarily big season long messages, but rather just an assortment of ideas presented episode by episode. And also, I think, no, I agree, Michael, but also, you know, in the second episode, we continue to see Pike preoccupied with his vision of the future. So we should, you know, expect the sort of like maybe season long story arcs also. Yeah, and what they told us was the story arcs would be the character development arcs. The the situation of the week would be generally unique, but it was the characters and how they interplay and how they grow and change that would be the story arcs in this season, which, uh, yeah, as clear as what they're doing. So of the two messages I see, one is that your fate is what you make it. The comet apparently somehow knew its future, and Pike also believes that he knows how his life ends. And both of these futures seems pretty disastrous, disastrous endings, disastrous fates. But the comet somehow knows that Starfleet will intervene. And we get a lot of conversation in this episode about Pike knowing his fate or thinking he does and trying to figure out what to do with that knowledge. He ends the episode starting to think that his fate is not just simply being paralyzed, unable to communicate, and disfigured by radiation burns, he's starting to think that maybe the meaning of his fate is about saving those cadets on the training crews. Right. I mean, he indicates that if he were to try to avoid this fate of his, that he would leave them to die. And obviously he can't do that. And again, Star Trek is all over the place on timelines, you know, changing timelines, different timelines and things. But we know that he doesn't avoid the accident. We also know what happens 
later that he doesn't know about if we watch the original series. It, I mean, it leaves us wondering whether Pike will be able to cheat his fate without breaking the overall Star Trek timeline. And I suppose it's not impossible that the writers could figure out a way for that to happen, you know, clones or, I mean, mm. who knows? I don't know. But like I said, we know more about his fate than he does because of the original series. And we know that even if this accident happens, maybe he'll find out it isn't as bad as he thinks. But the question is, how do we apply this idea of your fate is what you make it today? Maybe the lesson is when, when things are bad, when bad things are happening, to not feel helpless about it, not just say, why me? And there's nothing I can do, but rather, you know, look, search uh, to figure out how to make things better going forward. This is called agency, which in this sense, in this usage means the ability to make things happen. And I think that's what's facing Pike, finding ways to make what he understands his fate to be better and meaningful. But I also think we have to be a little bit careful about how we think about this lesson, Rodney. There mm -hmm. are people out there today who have the mindset that poor people are poor because they're not ambitious, because they're lazy, which yeah. is why they're lazy. So they haven't been able to make more money, make themselves more better off, make themselves richer. And that is kind of the Horatio Alger uh, story myth of uh, the early 20th century of the poor person, you know, born with no prospects that through in that story, it's his uh, own hard work and ambition. He gets to be rich and wealthy and successful. That idea is in our culture, uh, at least American culture. But the reality is that there are some circumstances that are just really hard to get out of, hard to make better, as if the system is rigged against you. And that's what Pike is thinking about at the end of this episode when he begins to focus on the cadets whose lives he will save. It doesn't get him out of the accident, but maybe it gives it more meaning, makes it more palatable. Plus, of course, we know, as I've said before, we know, but he doesn't, that eh, it may more or less work out in the end. More or less. You know, at the end there, I thought that what uh, Una was suggesting at the end of the episode was that maybe there was some way that he could still save these people and himself. And maybe at the end of the episode, Pike is maybe thinking maybe there is a way, maybe there's some way I can do this. Yeah, that know. would be a logical thought. If you know that yeah. this spaceship is going to have an accident, don't go on the spaceship. Right, um, right. <laughs> There of course, are, he doesn't have that option because, again, he can't just leave those folks to die there, right? Well, he's at least a captain, if not higher rank. You know, he can tell them, we're not going to go on that ship today. We're going to do some other kind of training. I mean, oh, you know, right, sure. uh, but on the other hand, there have been lots of stories, fictional time travel stories in which no matter how hard you try to change the future, you can't. Circumstances just work. Oh, right. You know, and yeah. and and so to a certain extent, they're playing with that. Una doesn't know the future that we know as fans either. So they are trying to come to grips with things without the future knowledge that we know. One thing you were saying uh, just a minute ago really resonated with me when you were talking about uh, poverty. Just to return to that idea, you know, 
I don't think anybody's ever really meant to be poor. Sometimes we act as if that, that people are fated to be that way or that it's just a natural consequence uh, for them. And that's simply just not the case. Poverty, I think, is a result of decisions human beings collectively make about how resources and benefits and burdens are going to be distributed. There's no natural law that says that human beings have to be poor. Yeah, um, and and those so decisions, I agree with you. Those decisions are often not the decision of the poor person. Exactly. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think a, a moment's reflection on that will show that that's true. (laughs) So I said, I thought there were two messages in this episode. The other is from the, uh, the shepherd, the alien saying, do not judge the faith of others. Mm. I remember that uh, we learned in discovery that Pike's father was a science teacher who also taught comparative religions. And Pike said in discovery that this resulted in many disagreements between him and his father but it may have also led to Pike coming out of those disagreements, more attuned to respecting other religious views. We don't know if Pike himself is particularly religious. But you definitely got that sense from season two of Discovery that he had a sort of tolerance for alternate perspectives like that. Yeah. And it's something that is notably absent in many areas of the world today. I'm going to make you do what my religious beliefs say you have to do. And I couldn't care less about what your religious beliefs have to say about it because they're bad and evil because they're not the same as mine. Or so the mindset goes. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, now I feel like I need to backpedal a little bit. We should mention that in this episode, uh, Pike doesn't have a very high opinion of the shepherds, really. He calls them zealots. And, and with good reason. I mean, they're apparently willing to just sit on their hands and do nothing as a comet threatens an entire planet. I mean, how could you do that? Yeah. Right. But remember that the writers thematically are connecting the faith of the shepherds with the comet, but they're also connecting the comet's faith with Pike's faith. Not to say that they're going to play out together, but, but thematically connecting them together. And so really, this may all be a single message. Religion down through the years has often been about, usually about how to live today, but also about the way in which your life today affects your future, depending on the religion, whether that's reincarnation mm-hmm. or immortal life in heaven or, or whatever. And the comet's fate needed help from others to realize. And Pike doesn't know it yet, but his fate also needs help from others too. And Rodney, I should say, I've, I've alluded to that several times. Is it a spoiler to reveal something from over 55 years ago? <laughs> right. I, I suppose people have had enough time to check that out. I, I, I don't know. For anyone who doesn't know what I'm talking about, it's the original series, first season, two-part episode, The Menagerie. Put it this way. I'm not saying it's Telosians, but it's Telosians. It is Telosians. Yeah. So... Maybe the message is that our fate is not just something we make for ourselves, but also something we make in relationship with others, which the comet did. And Pike is also doing each in their ways. Yeah, there's something here, by the way, Michael, that I noticed. I think it's related. I'm I'm not quite sure what to make of it, though. But precognition or foreknowledge, if you will, it's mentioned 
three times in this episode. So we've got Pike's foreknowledge of his accident, which is what we've been talking about. The Comet's foreknowledge of Spock's shuttlecraft mission, which we've mentioned. But there was a third mention, Chief Engineer Hammer's precognitive ability. We just met him for the first time in this episode, and that's what we learn about him. And that can't be an accident. So I would say maybe, well, in this episode, but maybe this season, (laughs) this will be about what we ought to do with foreknowledge, perhaps. Maybe we will return to climate change. Thinking about that issue, we know what's happening. We have some very good educated guesses about what it's going to mean for the planet. So what do we do about it? And I think that circles back to what we're saying here about Pike and what he's going to do with his foreknowledge. Yeah. So in this section of the podcast, in which we're talking about the themes and the messages and the philosophy and the meaning, I I do have a final question. And that is, who are the children of the comet? That's the episode name. And the episode has to have a reference. The episode name, I should say, has to have a reference to something. The obvious choice is that the natives down on the planet who will now have more opportunities for societal growth and development are Mm -hmm. the children of the comet, the beneficiaries, you could say, of that chunk of ice that came off the comet. The same name, children of the comet, has been used other places. Uh, It's the name of a book written by author David Moffat about a young man living on a comet. And I believe there are also some Marvel Universe superheroes whose ship, the Comet, crashed on Earth like 10,000 years ago, and they're guiding the evolution of the human race. But could it be that the episode name also refers to the shepherds? In religion, leaders sometimes at least refer to their followers as my children. Right. Or is it the Enterprise crew themselves? And the children reference is to the lessons they have learned or maybe even the landing party, right? Yeah. These are all possibilities. I think the best answer, in my opinion, would be all of the above. I'm, I'm pulling for that answer. That could be. And it could well have more than one reference, you know, a double, triple meaning or things. And it doesn't matter. You know, we can make the meaning of it that we want to. But sure. it still would be interesting to know what the intent of the, the writers was. Well, any final thoughts about this episode, Michael? Yeah, what two or think? three things, two or three things. Uh, it was a worthy second episode, and we're still getting to know the characters. And I think the audience, to a certain extent, still needs to or is getting into the rhythm of episodic television. If you grew up with it, you're used to the, mm-hmm. the rhythm, but younger fans and most of the people that are producing have not come out of the episodic science fiction environment. They're used to season-long story arcs in recent years. And so I think the fans and the producers both need to get into the rhythm. Well, as an older fan, Michael, um, I can say that I really like this episode. I get the rhythm, Michael. This was a good episode. Yeah. You know, some of the, the questions we've mentioned, they don't detract from the overall enjoyment, the overall quality of the episode. No, they do not. I do have to say, Rodney, that I am not impressed with Pike's hair. No? No. It reminds me of American country music star Lyle Lovett, who at least at (laughs) times in his career has had remarkably tall hair. Yes. Yes. (laughs) And Pike's hair is like twice as tall. It it poofs up 
like twice as far as it did in Discovery. And I don't understand this as a creative decision because it's, I don't know. It's so luxurious though, Michael. Don't you just want to run your fingers through it? I don't know. (laughs) Maybe some people do. There's another problem I have. It's not just this episode. And it's fact, it's not just Strange New Worlds, something I noticed this time, but it's really across all of recent Star Trek is that the Enterprise or whatever the hero ship is in question should not be maneuvering like the Millennium Falcon. The Enterprise is 190,000 gross tons in mass, according to the definitive 1960s book, The Making of Star Trek. That is almost twice as massive as the current American Gerald Ford class aircraft carriers. Mm -hmm. It's not a fighter. It's not a gunship. It's the Starfleet equivalent of at least a battleship. And as, as I just noted, it's more massive than the biggest aircraft carriers. So yes, with full power, it can maneuver fairly briskly, but that mass has a lot of momentum that has to be overcome, even with high power thrusters or with uh, impulse engine drive, however that works. Even with an expert helms being, it shouldn't just be dodging left and right, up and down so much. And the writers shouldn't put it in a position to need to do that because it's too big. It's too big to function like a fighter or a gunship or something small. So that's something that bothers me a little bit. Not so much that I don't enjoy the episodes by any means, but it does a few percentage drop back my willing suspension of disbelief (laughs) when I see the Enterprise or whatever ship it is, you know, dancing left and right, up and down, zoom, zoom, zoom. Um, Yeah. And I know how darn big the thing is. Yeah. In previous Star Trek series, the hero ship has never really moved like that. It's always moved pretty sluggishly and it's because of their mass, right? I'm reminded of first contact. Remember the Borg, the second time around, the Borg uh, attack Earth and uh, Jean-Luc and the Enterprise E come zooming in from the Romulan neutral zone. And there's Mm -hmm. this scene where the Enterprise is passing at a fairly placid state past the Borg cube. And then right beyond it, you see the Defiant from Deep Space Nine. And it's doing more of the zoom, zoom, zoom type thing. Right. So, you know, different ships, different masses, they have to behave differently. So again, I want to say again, it doesn't really detract from my enjoyment of the episode, but it is something that eh, just doesn't quite resonate with me based on what I know of other Star Trek. Right. Well, that's what uh, fans do. We'll pay attention to these kinds of details. Uh, But for now, it sounds like we're done. And we want to thank you for joining us this week. We're going to be back next week with episode three of Strange New Worlds, which we understand is entitled Ghosts of Illyria. And you can keep track of our new episodes and other announcements on our Twitter feed at Trek underscore Academy. Or you can subscribe directly at anchor.fm slash Star Trek Academy. We'll see you soon.